0: This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Americans have always struggled over the place of black people in America, starting at the beginning with the Constitution. Was the Constitution a pro-slavery document? Was the American nation founded on the Constitution's affirmation of slaves as property? Sean Wilentz has been studying that question, and he's here with some answers. He teaches history at Princeton. He writes for the New York Times op-ed page, the New York Review, and other publications. He's the award-winning author of many books, and his new book is No Property in Man, Slavery in Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Sean, welcome. As ever, great to be here, John. Here's the argument. The Constitution's original sin when it was written in 1787 was that it had a pro-slavery heart. And of course, traces of that are still alive in our political culture today. It took a terrible civil war to change that Constitution. The post-Civil War amendments, remember the 13th and the 14th, abolished slavery and guaranteed equal protection to all. And then the 15th Amendment, the first time the right to vote is mentioned in the Constitution, only then, the argument goes, did the nation repudiate the pro-slavery bias of the Constitution of 1787? Briefly, what's the argument you make against all this?
1: My point is that there's always been a struggle. We even see that in 1787 at the convention in Philadelphia. The framers of the Constitution conceded to the slaveholders a great deal in the Three-Fifths Clause, in delaying the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, in uh, putting in a fugitive slave clause. All of these things were there. They were all concessions to the slaveholders. However, what that view missed was the presence of an anti-slavery politics, even in the convention itself, and an anti-slavery politics that never did not simply fight and lose, but actually accomplish something, and accomplish something that proved to be very, very important to the, uh, to the flourishing of anti-slavery politics in the 19th century and the coming of the Civil War.
0: Historians are always interested in context, and I think we need to recall the context of America in 1787. We're talking here about anti-slavery. Anti-slavery was a very new idea in world history in
1: 1787. Yeah, that's quite correct. I mean, since antiquity, slavery had basically been accepted. There were the Quakers at the end of the 17th century, but not until 1750 did the Quakers even say that they could not own slaves anymore. So, so anti-slavery is something that's born more or less at the same time as the American Revolution. The very first anti-slavery society in the history of the world was founded in Philadelphia in 1775, five days before the battles of Lexington and Concord. It had nothing to do with the battles of Lexington and Concord. They were mostly Quakers, but nevertheless, that was the beginning. It was a very new thing in 1787. There had been slave rebellions. The free blacks had been pressing for, for, for their freedom, for uh, for expansion of their rights. Slaves had been uh, suing for their freedom for a while in, in, in New England. There were stirrings, to be, the, to be sure, but As a movement, as a form of politics, it was really very, very new. So in some ways, the anti-slavery delegates to the convention were carrying into the convention a kind of politics that was still experimental, that was still getting off the ground, Um, to the extent that they—what I'm struck by is how much they succeeded, given how new and experimental it really was, rather than where they fell short.
0: Well, and let's talk about slavery in 1787.
1: What were the slave states in 1787? Well, I mean, in 1776, let me make this point. Every state, all of the new states in the United States, all the colonies, um, were slave states. Slavery is recognized as legal in all of them. It's only in 1780 that Pennsylvania passes the first gradual emancipation law of its kind in history. And then five states in all, and then the state to be of Vermont get rid of slavery eventually, by 1787. Slave states, well, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia... North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. We think of the cotton plantations. We're thinking about a slavery that was going to be there at the time of the Civil War. But that was a very different slave economy, if you will. It was a a slave economy that was based on a different staple crop, which was cotton. At the end of the 18th century, tobacco market was glutted. The world tobacco market was glutted. It was not a, a, a wise, smart proposition to get involved in tobacco production, Um, There were only so many pipes in Europe. I mean, you know, things could not continue the way they were. So it was widely thought, especially in the upper South, um, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, that slavery was a system that was kind of on on its way out and eventually was going to be supplanted by something else. They had many questions of what you were going to do with all of those slaves, how blacks and whites might get along. All of that was there, but economically, it seemed to be not you know, the wave of the future. That was not true in South Carolina and Georgia. There where right, there were much more specialized crops. A very special kind of cotton was grown in, in, uh, on, on the, you know, the Atlantic seaboard. There, slavery was, was prospering, and they were holding on to their slaves and their, their right to ha- have slaves um, very tenaciously, much more than the Virginians. This is all going to be changed dramatically in the 1790s after the Constitutional Convention with the invention of the cotton gin and the rise of the cotton economy, which makes the slavery that we know, which creates the slavery that we know, um, but it's a very different kind of economy. So the politics makes the politics different. If you're in a situation where even many slaveholders think that slavery is kind of not such a great proposition economically— Forget the morality and the enlightened part of it, but just, you're not, it's not the wave of the future economically. That's a very different situation than you're going to have by the 1830s and 1840s, where cotton is the most valuable agricultural commodity in the world. It's the, you know, it's OPEC, uh, right? It, it's, 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 you know, the, the Southerners are building not only the strongest, but the richest slave society on earth, maybe indeed in world history but that's a different moment in the history of American slavery than the one that we're talking about back in 1787. So the people who have been arguing that the Constitution is a
0: has a pro-slavery heart make the argument that the Constitution allows slavery to continue. It accepts the existence of slavery. Isn't that granting it legitimacy? Isn't that making it part of the foundation of the United States?
1: No, it's not. And the reason it's not is because the Constitution was not devised to set up property laws for the entire country. Why were the framers in Philadelphia? They were there to establish a new government, more powerful central government, than, than had existed under the orders of Confederation. They were not there to mess around with the property laws of the individual states. Now, slavery existed as a state institution. The convention was in no um, position, the delegates to the convention were in no position to abolish slavery, to tell the southern states to get rid of slavery. They didn't have the power to do so. Had they tried to do so, they would, have, would not have been in the United States of America now. But there's a difference between tolerating slavery in state laws and legitimizing slavery in national law. By refusing to do that, and they do so very deliberately, it made possible what was going to become the the fulcrum of anti-slavery politics in the 19th century, which is not to abolish slavery, but to contain it, to keep it from growing, from keeping it from getting any larger than it was. There were two basic ways to do that in 1787. One is to keep the Western territories under the jurisdiction of the federal government and not to acknowledge property in man, therefore making it impossible for slaveholders just to claim their rights in the territories. That was one way. The second way was to give this new government the authority to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. Understand, going back to what I was saying before, John, about the character of slavery at the end of the 18th century as opposed to the 19th century. By the time you get to the 1820s and 30s, slavery can expand without an Atlantic slave trade, as well it did. The domestic slave trade becomes much more important. But at the end of the 18th century, the Atlantic slave trade was still seen as crucial certainly southern slaveholders thought it was crucial, to keeping their institution alive. Um, Indeed, all of the gradual emancipation or even immediate emancipation um, um, plans from the 18th century always began with getting rid of the Atlantic slave trade. That was always thought of as the first step towards abolishing slavery. What was going to be the power of the federal government, this new federal government, vis-a-vis the Atlantic slave trade? The South Carolinians, the Georgians, they didn't want the government to have any power whatsoever over that trade. They wanted to keep it the way it was, but it was only a matter of state law. The Northerners wanted the federal government to have complete control over the slave trade, to regulate it, but also to give it the po- power to abolish that slave trade. And indeed, the federal government does get the authority to abolish the Atlantic slave trade. It's quite true that the Southerners, and they're clever, they managed to get a kind of stay of execution, first to 1800 and then to 1808. And many, of, many historians have seen that yes. as the great pro-slavery <clears throat> victory. Yes. They're missing the fact that what the really strong victory was was to give the, gov- the federal government the power to get rid of it. The three-fifths clause. Every high school
0: student knows the Constitution says that black, pe- black people are three-fifths of a man.
1: Yes, well, they, the, that, that slaves were going to be counted as three-fifths of a person for the, per, for the purposes of representation in the House of Representatives and in the um, um, Electoral College. It's not that they were three-fifths of a person, mind you. Had they been carried, counted as a, as, as a full person, that's exactly what the slaveholders hold, wanted because they wanted more representation in Congress for the slaveholding states. So it's a, it's, it, was a, it was a compromise. The fact was, look... The framers of the Constitution in 1787, these they're not talking about, you know, 19th century small d Democrats. These are not, they believe that in the dominion of wealth, they believed that wealth ought to have a role to play in, in who was going to have power in the national government. That was true across the board. In 1791, when the Bill of Rights is approved by Congress, the Fifth Amendment in effect says, you know, it, it's about property. It's about due process. It's about the inviolability of property rights. So property is really important and they want to make sure that wealth gets its say. Now the South had a lot of wealth in slaves, not recognized in national law, but by state law that was where their wealth was. The idea that the holdings of slaves, their holdings of slaves, would not be represented somehow in counting representation for the House and for the Electoral College, it really wasn't in the cards. There were debates at one point, some, some of the northerners are very angry at the South. They say, no, no, we're not going to count any of the slaves for anything, to which the slaveholders counter. Or we're going to count them full. They keep coming back to the three-fifths clause. That is the compromise they're going to have. Now, look at the wording of the three-fifths clause. Slaves are never mentioned. It was very clear what they were talking about, but they refer, refer to slaves as all other persons. They were, slaves are referred to as persons, That's big. Well, you know, this has been part of the problem, I think, with the older interpretation of slavery in the Constitution. If you refer to slaves as persons, persons held to service, persons held to labor, what have you, you're lumping them with other forms of bonded labor, like indentured servitude or apprentices. But this is not the same thing as as making the slaves property. And that's the essential difference that is going to make, by, 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 by making slaves, by rendering slaves, but discussing slaves as persons rather than as property, then the slaveholders' claims are no longer inviolable. The fight over precisely that issue of whether the Constitution recognizes property in man is going to be at the heart of the secession crisis and why the North is so tenacious in holding on to its view, its view of the Constitution, which is to say that the Constitution does not authorize slavery.
0: And we have to talk about the Fugitive Slave Clause. This was an obsession of the slave owners. They're slaves who escaped to the free states and were protected there. The southern planters, slave-owning class, wanted them back, and the Constitution gives
1: them the power to get them back. Correct. They get through a clause which says... It's, it's it's very strange. I've said this to audiences before. If I was a teacher grading it, I would give it a very low grade, a D at best, because it's written entirely in the passive voice. It says that slaves who run to from a slave state to a fr- state that's either free or is becoming free, they will not be rendered free. Now, that's a major distinction, right? The The, the northern states cannot hold themselves out as free soil for slaves to run away. More than that, slaves according to the, the Fugitive Slave Clause, shall be delivered up to persons um, to whom their service or labor may be due. It's all in the passive voice. Never says who's going to be doing any of this stuff. It's a very vague protection to the slaveholders, which is going to say that basically the, the, the northern states cannot declare the slaves free when they get there. But who's going to do the delivering up? Who's going to be doing the, rep- you know, the, the actual capture? That's all left for later. That was something that the, the, the Northerners were willing to put up with. Now, probably here certainly is the one place where the slaveholders actually expand, directly expand their power at the Constitutional Convention. Here's the place where something they didn't have before, they now have. In part, it's because the northern states had been emancipating. This is a defensive uh, action on the part of the slaveholders. They wouldn't have done this in 1777 because slavery was still legal in all these northern states. So this was their attempt to try and deal with the fact that slavery was under great pressure in the North. They were going to make sure that the North could not be a refuge for for their runaway slaves, because wherever you have slavery, you have runaway slaves, because slavery is intolerable. But when they designed it, again, the question comes up, how are we going to describe the runaway slaves? Are we going to describe them as runaway slaves? In the very first iteration of this by the South Carolinians I talked about, that's exactly what they wanted to say. But the convention would not allow that. The convention makes makes sure to word the Fugitive Slave Clause. We call it the Fugitive Slave Clause. It's not the Fugitive Slave Clause because the word slavery is not actually put there. Everybody knew they were talking about slaves, but they referred to persons held to service or labor. Which, again, that's an indentured servant, that's an apprentice, that's not necessarily recognizing slaves as property. In fact, it's, it's refusing to recognize slaves as property.
0: So what does that all mean today? What's the import today of your argument that the American nation is not founded on a pro-slavery constitutional basis?
1: I think that too much of the time we have a very you know, dark view of American history in which there's no struggle in which you know the struggle emerged as as slaves and others awoke to their to their own um, uh, oppression, and that down the line eventually something is going to spring up that's going to challenge this racist slaveholders' regime that came into existence in 1787. My argument is that there was struggle over that from the very beginning, struggle that was rooted in the in the um, uprisings of slaves and um, free blacks and resistance to to, to racism and to slavery. Um, um, suits by free blacks to get their freedom. There was a struggle going on that, 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 that slaves and free blacks were, were, were instigating. But it implicated others, whites, who understood that, yes, this is something that we believe in. This is a violation of natural rights. We can't be fighting for liberty and freedom and equality and have slavery at the same time. That wasn't all of white America by any means. Um, there were many who proposed exactly the opposite. There were many slaveholders who saw in the Declaration of Independence the principles that could uphold slavery. But there was a struggle. The struggle was there from the start. And if we are to understand the struggle for freedom in America, we are shortchanging it, we are misinterpreting it if we don't see that struggle as going all the way back to the founders. The struggle was there from the start,
0: Sean Walens' new book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Sean, thanks so much for talking with us today.
1: As ever, John. See you later.